Judy Stewart, and this is Unpaused, a podcast for women wanting to reinvent their careers after an extended break from work or mastermind a new one. Today, I'm speaking to writer and illustrator Naomi Bulger, a woman who literally popped into my letterbox at home when she hand-painted an envelope containing a special invitation and in the process reopened my eyes to the languishing art of the handwritten letter. While Naomi's talents far exceed this letter's intended purpose, I treasure that small parcel to this day. And it turns out I'm not alone. Almost four-fifths of all handwritten notes are never discarded. Naomi is an accomplished writer, has two books under her belt, and you may have unknowingly read her copy in both glossy and serious corporate literature. What she's learned about the struggles women face to go public with the work they do and how to overcome them is at the heart of her new business. Naomi, welcome. Thank you for painting that long treasured envelope for me. And thank you also for coming on Unpaused. Thank you for having me. You've packed a lot into your professional life. What was the first big job that really set you up in your career? And what are you doing now? The first big job I had was an abject failure. It was my first sort of big job outside of uni was a national coordinator for a big charity program. And I landed that job after finishing my studies and I was terrible at it. All I wanted to do was write and I would neglect phone calls and not respond to them until the end of the day. I'm quite an introvert. I didn't really get out and promote the importance of the charity or do any of the things I was supposed to do, except I wrote really, really good manuals and brochures and marketing material for them and uh, not surprisingly uh, my role was made redundant with it less than a year and I was given I had this sort of moment of pause because it had been my first important job and I'd failed at it and I had sort of unknowingly defined myself by it to say this is what I am or this is what I do and suddenly I had nothing literally I had to go back and work in a supermarket I just had no other skills but you um, had the writing right you had I like, did I mean, you but had an interest I even, in writing but you hadn't trained as a writer correct I studied literature and later theology but no um sort of writing training because I was a snob when it was when I went to university and I thought that I only wanted to write great novels and that journalists were hacks and I wasn't going to do that so I hadn't studied and I got really lucky so I spent some time after that redundancy just kind of revisiting what are my core goals and dreams? What actually do I want to do? And through that process, I kind of realized what I should have known earlier, which is I still want to write. It's all I wanted to do. Um, So I needed to pivot at the very, very early age of about 23 Mm. um, to pivot. And so I landed a job that was meant to be six weeks, um, a fill-in kind of journalism commodity analyst job for a radio bureau in Sydney and my boss was a very very old school um, editor and he used to work for the Sydney Morning Herald and he was sort of known everywhere and he took me under his wing and mentored me and I stayed there for several years and learnt the trade of journalism so that was both radio and print Mm. and he really enabled me He, he taught me all the sort of communications tools and the storytelling tools that I still use today came from that very, very humble rural commodity news. Rural commodities, goodness me, you've come a long way since then. (laughs) So what are you doing now? What's this new business? 
So this new business is called Tangle and Fern and essentially it came out of um, COVID, the lockdown, the pandemics. I wasn't able to do the work that I needed to do for my clients um, while also homeschooling my kids and I felt that I was failing on every possible level. And I also had come across, I guess I had been doing two things in tandem quietly so that the the letter writing and the illustration were very public. People saw those on Instagram. They read about them on my blog. They weren't income generating. And I would quietly, without really talking about it in public, continue working for clients, managing their brands, writing their content, sort of strategizing their communications. And it took me a really long time to learn that the community that I had around letter writing and illustration, many, many of those women um, wanted to take their work into the public sphere somehow. They wanted to launch a business or create a brand or be more public with their work and they didn't know how. And I came gradually to discover that I was part of a community of really creative women and so many talented, extraordinarily talented women Many of them, um, like your guests, pivoting, you know, doctors turned artists, that kind of thing, who had these extraordinary skills, but they didn't know how to go public or there was a really powerful reticence. There's that the kind of sense that branding means sleazy marketing or manipulation, um, that copywriting means clickbait, and there's sort of um, a real lack of understanding about what, telling your story entails and how that you can do that with a whole lot of authenticity and you can do that with a really good feeling that you're giving people opportunities to see and access your work. So my business came out of that understanding and it's been a very, very slow growth to hopefully help people on that path. I'm interested in this because there's been a lot written about personal branding, but I can understand that antipathy towards the concept because it feels very sort of artificial. Can you tell me the fundamentals of this and why it's important, especially if you are rethinking a working life? My response is that we all already have personal brands and we're not Kardashians. That's not what I talk about when I talk about personal branding. I think a brand is the way you make people feel. It's what um, there's a quote and I cannot remember who to attribute it to, but they say that um, Branding is what people say about you after you've left the room. It's uh, what you want people to think of you and believe about you at a real base and how you want them to feel. So that being the case, we're all already doing that. We're leaving impressions and we're giving people, we're inspiring emotion in any across the gamut Mm -hmm. of emotion. And so what branding does for people is It enables them to take control of that narrative, to be, first of all, really aware that that's what we're doing in our day-to-day life. And so when it comes to our work, what actual stories do we want people to tell about us? How do we want people to feel? And how can we, once we've figured out what the answers to those questions, how can we do that consistently? Because what that does for people is it, first of all, enables them to set up those emotions and those feelings and those responses can be led by your own values, which makes you feel really good because then it's Mm. not at all manipulative. It's what you stand for and what you believe in the most. And secondly, once you can do that consistently, it helps you attract people who really share your values and they share not just your aesthetics or want the things you're making, but they share why you're doing it, the way you're doing it, what matters to you. 
And those are really lovely people to have as your community, your customers, your audience. And then finally, it enables you to be really memorable because you keep repeating actions, communications, behaviours that are specifically designed to reflect your values and help people feel the way you want them to feel. You become memorable to them. And that's really nice when they are wanting the thing that you're doing or making. They remember you because you're the one who stands out as their person. If that makes sense. And so in relation to your brand, Naomi, which has a lot of beautiful colour and movement behind it, what would you say is the, you know, your, say, top brand quality of the Naomi Bulger brand? I want people to feel creatively nurtured. So that's something that I keep in mind. So inspired and empowered to explore their creative work and creative interests but I also want them to feel nurtured in that and cared for and I want people to feel a sense of calm when they work with me or engage with anything that I've written on my websites so I want them to feel inspired nurtured and calm I think Mm. and I want them to feel connected there's a real personal element to the way I want to do branding and I want people to feel that I'm approachable and Mm. that I I don't want to come across as someone corporate or. Yes, it's sort of the anti-corporate thing, isn't it? Which I must say is very attractive to me. But I know it hasn't all been plain sailing and you talk a lot in your writing about fear and overcoming fear and also regret for time wasted perhaps. And is that something that women then confide back to you that they've had a similar experience? Yes. Whenever I... I'm courageous enough to write that sort of content, the responses I get back are, oh my goodness, me too. I feel heard, which is really lovely. And I do, it's a funny thing to say because there are absolutely pockets of my adult life and career that I could call wasted or that I regret. And the regrets are real, but the process is also positive. And it's not as trite as to say, oh, but they got me to where I am now. It's more a growing process and I think that I'm not very mature. I think I was slow to mature and my entire adult career, if I look back, has been a series of pauses and starts and pauses and starts and I'm okay with that now. So when we talk about regret, it's there but it's not the whole thing. So I know the one you're talking about that I wrote about was university Mm. when I spent two years developing a portfolio for what was back then the only creative writing degree in Australia. And I wanted to be a writer and I knew it. And I worked incredibly hard and there was a whole lot more to the application that was involved, but I got got accepted into that Mm. university and I didn't have the courage to do the degree. I thought that (laughs) to be a creative writer, I also had to do a lot of drugs and live a really wild life and I didn't I was too scared. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I, I let that degree go, which was really, that's a big regret to this day. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I kind of pivoted my first job. I did different degrees, pivoted the first job and came out still writing. And that was a really important lesson for me to learn that mm-hmm. this is what I want to do. And I took a different path getting where I wanted. And I learned that there were different ways to write. And I, I didn't have to be Jane Austen to mm. to write and that I could find pleasure and joy in writing the driest like rural commodities camp there's nothing more dry mm-hmm. so I treated it like poetry and I wanted to find the best most concise way to write about wool futures for the radio <laughs> as I could and owned my craft and I'm thankful for that mm. 
you wrote something that I really loved on idea debt. What is it and is it common? Idea debt, I do believe a lot of people feel it. I could be wrong about that, but I certainly in my circle and people that I speak to, a lot of us relate to this and I certainly do. It's It reminds me of rides I used to take in taxis when the taxi driver would say, what's your job? And I'd say, I'm a writer. And the taxi driver would say, oh, I've got a book. I've got a book. It's going to be such a good book when I write that book. And they want to talk to you the whole journey about their book. And then they say, what do I need to do to get it published? And I'd say, well, have you written it? Well, no, Mm. I don't really know how to write. And I'd say, well, that would be a great start Mm. (laughs) towards having a book. An idea that is we spend so much time excited about our great idea and planning it, thinking about it, maybe talking about it, dreaming about it, doing all the things around the idea without actually doing the idea. And I think particularly women and women I work with often have a tendency, for example, to see, think they'll need another degree. Like let's just get another formal certification before I can do this thing. Um, and I don't like to generalise on genders, but I do see that quite a lot. We need to talk about this some more. I need to bring some more people in to collaborate on this. I just need to canvas some more ideas. I need to do some more studies. I'm just going to enrol in this postgrad. you know, it's only two years, mm. and but nothing ever happens with the actual idea and it doesn't work. And I think that that's when we become so indebted to the idea that we don't achieve the things we want to achieve. And it's really sad because we have these amazing dreams and I think that many of us can do a lot more than we want, but I also think it's tied to perfectionism, Mm. imposter syndrome, all of those things that hold us back. At the root of idea debt is probably fear as it's at Mm. the root of so many things. We're too afraid to take the steps so we just keep planning instead of doing. And so where does your process fit into that? How do you get people to take the idea and actually complete it? It's a lot of hard work and it's... A lot of when I work with my clients, there's that particularly students who work with me on the sort of longer programs, there's that process where at the beginning, we're in the ideas and planning and they love to plan their brands and to think about what they're going to do and talk about it. And we get to that point. Now they have to write something down or now they have to make something or tell people in public. And it's a really, it's that sort of first step. That is really hard work and there's a lot of kind of emotional coaching that goes in along with skills training and some people choose never to do it and I can't force them. Mm. But I do think there is when people come to me and they've invested in a long program, that's a financial investment, it's a time investment and that alone is a good step towards doing it but it's not always the only one just like people who do degrees instead of doing their thing. Mm. They'll go through the whole course with me and I I'm some, I just want to push them because I know they can do it, but I can't push. We've, we've just no. got to let it happen. You talked about in a Pep Talks podcast that you've started and it was about unique, not copied. And I really like this idea of, you know, the feeling that, oh, well, look, everyone else has done this before, before me or I'm one of 5,000 lawyers. You know, how do you encourage people to differentiate their thinking and differentiate themselves. How do you see the key to that differentiation? A significant amount of that comes back to work that we do really early on in establishing their values. And it goes back to what I was saying about branding, that we we work really hard and we spend a lot of time helping people articulate what are their core values, what do they stand for, how do they want to do things. And out of that comes a sense of 
this being very much them. So I work with, say, for example, florists, a lot of florists I work with, which is lovely. Mm. They're all dealing with flowers and there's X number of flowers available, particularly if you're in similar climates or regions, but they all do things very differently. And a lot of that is based on their values, what they stand for, why they're doing it, how they see this in their life and how they see this serving their lives. And I think that too often, as you mentioned, we think that we've got to be the only one doing something or utterly new and unique, and it's just not possible. And so I apply, and you know this, Judy, this sort of old journalism saying, which is, if you can't say something new, say something new about something pre-existing, something old. Mm. And that's how I would approach things with my clients. You don't have to be the first person to sell flowers. You're the first person to do it your way, to be you in this process. And that comes across everything from the aesthetics to the way you speak to your customers, to the way you show up in the world, to what you do alongside it. So what, what else goes along with it? And that's where you can be unique. And I would also talk to my clients a lot of when they're first starting out about um, copying to learn. So that's not to present yourself as you don't present this work to the world as your own if you're copying someone's, but you learn from what others have done before. So as writers, we will look at the way great writers write and we'll sometimes even, like when I was studying at university, we'd copy out their words mm. in literature to get a feel, get the rhythm, get the understanding. Artists will do pastiche of other, other artists' work or copy in order to learn. And I think that's okay as long as you're not presenting it as your own or mm. trying to sell it um, mm. in your own right. It's a process that's the stepping stone towards developing your own style in whatever it is you're doing. Can we talk about the handmade and the handwritten? Because this is how I discovered you and how a lot of people know you, Naomi. Do you think there's still a role in the world for a handwritten letter and especially in the business world? Business world, that's interesting. I mean, the first part of your question, yes, 100% yes. I think that there's more of a role now in something handmade and handwritten than perhaps the value it would have had in, say, the 1980s because we're so connected digitally, we overlook the beauty and the importance of holding something in your hand, something tactile, something that I've written to you and it's travelled across oceans and mountains and cities and it's made it to you and it took me a long time to do and so it's got that sense of my time being given to you it's one of those things I think that we don't miss until we get it and then when mm. we do we realize how precious something like that is in the business world I do think that personalizing what we do and showing that we have given something time is very important and I do think that there is a role for things being handwritten because they demonstrate respect and care and time and if you want to convey that to someone it's hard to go past mm. something that you've really set, taken time to write and present beautifully actually it's something I've really drilled into my boys writing handwritten thank you notes and they thought at the beginning that it was you know me being mum but actually they do do it or some of them do and even they remark on it back to me how it's made such an impression. I know you 
took your family to Brittany for six months, just yes. out of the blue. <laughs> yes. Just tell me some of the lessons you learned from doing this wild, adventurous thing. What did it teach you and would you do it again? I mean, that was an extraordinary time and it was so, it was out of the blue when we did mm. it. My husband wasn't with us. He was traveling a lot. So I just decided instead of waiting around for him in Australia, I'd wait around in France because why not? Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't do it again without him. That was really tough. Mm. But because oh, you had two seen. two young children, yeah. So they were aged four and six at the mm-hmm. time. It became an extraordinarily sort of healing and refreshing time. We walked every day. So the children were typical Aussie kids who would complain after two blocks. My legs are tired here in Australia, and they would work for sixteen kilometers in a day. Little four year old legs, not mm-hmm. a complaint packed food in a backpack and off we'd go and just explore ruins and forests and things. It taught me a whole lot more about respecting the way, and this sounds so trite, but the way the seasons operate and work. When you're so busy at home and like, you know, kids and work and everything going on all the time, it's really hard to stop and look. And what I saw in France was this real respect for the days and the seasons and the time things having a time and a place. So for example, I would go to the town hall to try and get my kids into a childcare so that they could make some friends, but it was lunchtime and they have a two hour lunch and that's that. And you just don't, they're closed, they're gone. The entire town hall's locked up (laughs) until two hours later. And all the shops, it was a very touristy town, particularly in the warmer months, full of tourists and all these tourist shops would close for two hours over lunchtime. And you'd see all the shopkeepers sitting around in the cafes, which were open because they absolutely safeguarded their time apart. The, all of the shops and supermarkets, everything were closed from Saturday afternoon through to Tuesday. Mm. And one of the women or neighbour that I was talking to sort of shrugged at me like, why, why would you question this? Sunday's for family. They mm. don't even go to the restaurants. It's family time and it's safeguarded. And yet somehow with all this time off, they still managed to run like that nothing mm. fell apart commerce continued everything that we think is so necessary for us to put in 16 hour days Mm. continued just fine even for the the kids had to learn that all the cafes didn't have toasties and nuggets because kids ate what adults ate Mm. and they just had to learn to diversify their palates you couldn't get meals in all the cafes and bars they'd be open from say 10 in the morning but you could only get a drink you could still get alcohol but you couldn't, you would only eat between 12 and two and seven and nine. And the Mm. rest of the time was just for community. There were no takeaway coffees. So if I wanted to have a coffee, I would sit and sip that coffee in the cafe and look at the world. Mm. And so everything became, and that's at the smaller level, the hours, but the seasons also reflected that became really mindful of what is this time for? What is the allocated objective of this time? And I resented it initially and then came to really really love that lesson the other one was around food and I I did a whole project last year that I'd love to continue but the pandemic killed me (laughs) with doing it but it was around eating seasonally buying and eating food seasonally because we could only buy from the market the farmer's market which only came once a week and you wouldn't know what was at the market from week to week because the Brussels sprouts might have been no good because there was rain so this week you've got something else So there was no sense of get a shopping list and prepare ahead of time for what you're going to feed the family. You had to go see what food was there and figure out 
how to feed them for a week out of what you could see. And it was a really different way and difficult for me as I'm not a brilliant cook, but it was actually really, really special way to respect the seasons and understand what's going on and where the food comes from. And I loved learning that. That Mm. was a beautiful Mm. lesson. Naomi, if people want to find out more about you, how do they find you? Uh, I have my business website is tangleandfern.com, just A-N-D, fern.com. And that's where they can learn about all the work that I'm doing with my clients, branding and content. I'm on Instagram, just at Naomi Bolger. And my sort of more creative, um, fun projects website is naomiloves.com. I mean, all oh, those and what about Pinterest? I've looked at you on Pinterest. <laughs> oh my God, that's a feast. It's really Pinterest beautiful, is- Naomi. I find it very inspiring. Mean, I'm really interested in your business, but I find the backstory about your creativity and you paint so beautifully. And honestly, you. your projects are just gorgeous. So if people want to go into that side, the mail art and the, the you know, the coloring inside, where do they go for that? <laughs> My website, Naomi Loves, is where I share all of those projects. And I really see it as, in that sense, I'm being my own benefactor. The reason I have two separate websites and keep them separate is because one area I make money and it's my job and the other area I want to keep it not about money. I want to enjoy the creativity and all of that work. And so one business is the benefactor of the other, if that Mm. makes sense. Clever girl. Well done. I'm pretty confident Naomi was predestined to be a creative writer, but there's a lesson in that fill-in job she took at 23 when she hit rock bottom. It turned before too long into a permanent role and came with an in-house mentor who taught her the skills she's used in every role ever since. It all came back to writing. She just went the long way round to get there. Just as important to the story is how Naomi committed in return to making something as obscure to most of us as rural commodities futures into poetry. It worked and Naomi the writer was on her way. What grew as she moved to become a teacher and coach was the conviction that values underpinned true confidence. Thus, her branding workshops became the outer shell of something that reached far deeper, uncovering an understanding of who each client is and what drives her as she struggles to bring her work to public notice. With that established, confidence starts to solidify and things begin to happen. The other thing I want to emphasize is that Naomi's customers were drawn from the community she already had due to those early creative endeavors that she had established under the Naomi Loves banner. When she was ready to launch Tangle and Fern, a more commercial business that would earn income for her, she didn't have to go looking very far for a following. It was already built in that early audience. One begat the other. And having two websites with one the benefactor of the other makes sense. Not only do you not have to put your creative life on hold just because you need to work, managed well, the day job can bring that creative life closer. Thanks to my producer, Leonie Marsh, to Jason Milhouse in the studio, and to Naomi for saying yes. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>